Hey, I'm Serge. And I'm Peter. And we're with the Future Break Podcast, where we talk about emerging technology, human behavior, and what this means for the future. Find out how Russia is using technology to suppress free speech. And how a school without teachers or tuition is changing the future of education. You can find our show on your favorite podcast player or by going to futurebreak.net. You are now entering the podglomerate. I, I think I was, I mean, I definitely was surprised by how much writing I was still doing. Welcome to Writers You Know Right. I'm Jeff. And I am Kyle. And it is Christmas. Or actually, if you're listening to this episode, it's right after Christmas. And we are lazy for the holidays. Yeah, we, we weren't going to put out another episode, uh, but <laughs> we wanted to, we were going through, we wanted to find an episode that made us feel good, which was all of them. So we just threw a dart and we got Lillian Cunningham, who uh, you may remember her as the host of the presidential podcast. And within the episode, she teased a new podcast that she was making with the Washington Post called Constitutional. We're now 13 or 14 episodes into Constitutional, and it is you know one of the best history shows I have ever heard. You know, not even just podcasts, just in general. So I think you should all tune in and listen to it. And this interview on Writers Who Don't Write is a nice glimpse into what went into making Presidential and you know, what I assume is also going into constitutional, it shows a really wide range. And I thought it was just like a nice reprieve. Uh, so this int- this uh, episode begins with a short clip of presidential uh, graciously provided to us from the Washington Post. So thank you for that. Uh, we also want to let you know that Writers You Don't Write is supported by CastBox, the fastest growing podcast app around. CastBox also just launched in-audio search capability that offers a brand new way to search for podcasts you may love based on words or topics within an episode. CastBox is available on iOS, Android, and desktop, and it works with Google Home and Amazon Alexa as well. So download the app today and give it a shot. And let's get right into it. I'm Lillian Cunningham, and I'm the editor of a section here called On Leadership. I mostly interview current leaders in business and government, but I had the idea that, especially in this election year, it would be really fascinating to study up more on presidential leadership in particular, like the skills and the circumstances that have made certain presidents effective or ineffective, and whether the type of leadership traits required to do the job well have changed significantly over the years. That's when I started confronting the fact that there are a lot of presidents I really know nothing about. So Lillian, I wanted to give you, you know, just a quick little brief you know, monologue about like how I came across the show and, and what it meant to me over the course of this election season. I'd love that. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I, uh, I quit my job in September and I moved to California to work on an election, uh, a voter registration startup, which taught me a lot of things that I had really no clue about. You know, some of it was like data and, and marketing and this very specific product uh, in order to help people you know, get ready to register to vote. But I also had a lot of downtime. And in that downtime, I listened to a ridiculous amount of podcasts and I discovered Presidential. And it seemed really fitting because I was 
working on you know this institution that had been created back in the day of of you know Washington and and you were able to kind of guide me through like this 200 plus year experience of the peaceful transition of power between these men all men unfortunately you know throughout our history and you know I wanted to to just say thank you for doing that because you know it was it was a really interesting experience for me and I learned quite a bit but I also wanted to ask mm-hmm. you basically how this thing came to be sure well, can I ask you a question first, actually? I'm always yeah. really interested to know, you know, how interested you were in presidential history and American history before you listened to it, or if you came to it uh, somewhat blind. She flipped the well, format. <laughs> just like that, straight back into it. I'm used to being the one asking questions, so I guess I just default to that. Well, hey, if you ever want to have us come on, on you know, season two to talk about <laughs> yeah. this, we'd love to. Please don't. <laughs> well, no, so I, I, you know, I grew up in Exeter, New Hampshire, which is a pretty historical place. And we always had presidents come to, you know, stump here. Uh, we had Phillips Exeter Academy. We're one of the, you know, oldest towns in America. Uh, there's a, you know, it's literally like a Revolutionary War town. And I think we were, and don't quote me on this, but I think we were the capital of New Hampshire for a little bit. So I've I've always been really interested. Like on my bookshelf, there's a bunch of stuff by like Michael Beschlis and stuff. But, you know, I'd say I was probably in the upper echelons of, of, you know, middle schoolers interested in (laughs) presidential history. But, you know, beyond that, not really. So, I mean, I I guess that's the, the best answer I have right now. Yeah. Well, so, I mean, I guess that kind of feeds into my answering your question, uh, which is how it came about for me. I mean, I, uh, you know, aside from like elementary school, middle school, high school, U.S. history classes, I really didn't, I mean, it, wa- it wasn't an interest I cultivated on my own. I'm, I've never been a huge reader of biographies, actually. I'm I'm a journalist, but I read a lot more fiction in my spare time than nonfiction. So, I mean, the idea came to me because, you know, it was 2015, toward the end of 2015, and we were about to go into this, what already, you know, you could tell was a big election year. And uh, because of my job at The Post as the on-leadership editor, I had this feeling or this sense that, you know, I really needed to brush up on my own understanding of presidential history in order to be able to provide better context for readers. Most of what I was doing before was, you know, writing and print-based. So I was thinking of it as readers. Um, And I actually went looking to see if there was a podcast out there like presidential where I could just listen through and get a download of all the important information about each president and I could like listen to it on my commutes and by the time 2016 rolled around and I had to write pieces on presidential leadership and the campaigns and the election that I would be well primed and I was kind of surprised that there wasn't a podcast like that out there there weren't even a ton of really great websites out there that I could read through so the idea just kind of hatched in my head and then stuck that like, it just, it kept nagging at me. This idea that, you know, maybe I should be the one, maybe I should 
do the thing that I wish someone else had done for me and make this podcast on the American presidency. So yeah, I mean, it really started, it started from a gap in my knowledge. And I was really intimidated by the process, in part just because of the pace of it. It was a weekly podcast and, Mm -hmm. you know, 44 episodes is a lot to commit yourself to week after week. But um, I was also just intimidated by the content, you know, because I felt like for most of these presidents, with the exception of, you know, Lincoln and Theodore Roosevelt and some of our more recent presidents, I was really starting from nothing. And so the idea that I would go from zero to, you know, some expertise in the course of a week felt felt kind of overwhelming, but it felt like the right kind of challenge to take on last year. So that no, was sort no, of the origin story. Have you worked in audio before? I had done a really little bit. As the leadership editor, I did a video series where I would interview business leaders and politicians, I guess about two years ago, a year and a half ago. I... I thought one day like well we have you know we do these at the time they were like 45 minute long video interviews but for video for the Washington Post they always wanted us to cut it down to like the best five minutes so we would leave you know all this great conversation on the cutting room floor so I decided back then you know why don't we just take the basically unedited versions of these conversations and put them up as a podcast so if people like the five minutes of video, they we can just, you know, offer the rest of it as audio for them. So that was like my tiny bit of experience, but I, I didn't do any editing really. I mean, we basically just put up the raw file with a little bit of music at the top. You know, I kind of knew my way around the audio editing program. I use Audition, but the idea of actually doing like a narrative podcast with multiple interviews, a lot of editing, music, all of that was totally foreign to me. And I just kind of learned and taught myself as I went. So at the same time you were learning about all of these different presidents, you're also (laughs) teaching yourself how to edit an Adobe audition. Yep. (laughs) It's hard to tell which one was uh, more difficult. (laughs) But I probably still know more about, I probably know more about presidents right now than I still know about (laughs) Adobe Audition. I feel like I've only cracked, you know, the very surface of what it can do. Do you do all of the recording yourself as well? Or do you have an audio technician to help you out with that side of things? No, I do it all myself. Um, Wow. You're a one woman machine. Yeah, it was, it was a lot. Um, I wore a lot of hats for it, but the upside of it is that it it felt like my vision. It felt like my child <laughs> I sort of brought into the world. Um, and there, there were a lot of things I wanted to be able to do with the podcast that I felt like, especially early on, I didn't quite have the technical skill to be able to execute the vision I had the way I wanted to. But, um, but at the same time, there was a lot of freedom and uh, just sort of creativity that came with being at the at the helm of every part of the process. 
What were were there any concessions that you made along the way to your lack of technical knowledge? Were the, was there anything that directly affected the way that you chose to tell each story? Yeah. So, I mean, some of it was my technical knowledge. I, I felt like there were a, a million constraints. One was technical knowledge. Another one was time. I mean, that was probably the biggest constraint that I felt, you know, when I had the idea for the podcast in my head, I was going to actually go out, like get out of the newsroom and report for every single episode. I was going to go to every single presidential library. I was going to knock on the door of like every living relative of, you know, past American presidents and having to do one of these a week and doing all of the production work and all the research and everything just meant that I didn't actually, I didn't actually get out to these sites as much as I wished that I would have. In some cases I did, but mostly the ones that were, you know, closer to DC, because I just didn't really have the luxury to hop away to another far off city for a couple days. Um, there just wasn't that room in, in the time frame I'd set myself. So prior to you creating this podcast, you're and I mean, currently, your role, uh, role at the Washington Post was editor of the on leadership section. So did, did this kind of replace that role when it comes to actually like writing articles for the paper? You know, I guess my question is, did this replace what you were doing? Or is this in addition to like all of the stories that you were also writing? Mm-hmm. Well, when it started out, it was in addition. And then it very quickly became clear that I wasn't going to be able to pull off all 44 episodes unless I dramatically scaled back how much writing and editing and text-based mm-hmm. reporting work I was doing. Um, and fortunately, you know, I have really great colleagues there and a couple of them like picked up the slack for me and uh, took over some of the things that normally I was doing as part of the on-leadership job. So it ended up, you know, by the time I was in sort of the back half of the presidential series, I was, uh, you know, almost exclusively just working on the podcast. One thing that I think a lot of, you know, listeners especially don't know, and, and, you know, sometimes some people that are first getting into podcasting is just how much writing goes into these episodes, especially if it's a narrative nonfiction piece. You know, I know quite a bit of, of presidential relied on interviews, but you know, there's quite a bit, there there are a lot of elements here that come from like you crafting a story surrounding, you know, these pieces that you're working with. So did you anticipate that and, and kind of how did you work in that, in that realm? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I, I think I was, I mean, I definitely was surprised by how much writing I was still doing. And for start, uh, obviously to start as you're doing research and you're preparing for interviews, you're taking tons of notes, you're writing questions, you're thinking about how to frame questions and, you know, write them for yourself in a way that you can get the sort of detail in the responses. Um, So there's that part of it. And then, yeah, as you said, I mean, obviously the interviews are just interviews and the experts and historians and biographers say what they're going to say. But um, but then between all of that, you have this narrative arc 
that um, that you know bridges the whole episode, and that was a ton of writing, and it's a very different style of writing too. Obviously, to write for how someone's going to hear a story than how they're going to read it, and so that was stretching a very different muscle for me. And um, I would say, I mean, I would also say what there was a lot of editing that it wasn't just audio editing. I mean, I know this isn't the process <laughs> that maybe everyone uses or is that or is really prescribed for podcast work, but in most cases what I would do is transcribe all the interviews I did, um, print them, print them out, take scissors, cut them up and spread them out across this huge table that we have at the post and try to figure out like where where themes emerged or where something that one person said in an interview seemed to you know provide a springboard to move to something someone else said in an entirely different part of their interview and I felt that you know, even though I was working in audio, there was something about being able to sort of visually lay out a story that was really important to me. So, and then I would start to write the connective tissue and I'd often write the narration on a piece of paper and stick that narration, like physically put it in between, you know, parts of the transcripts of other people's interviews so I could see it coming together before I even touched the audio, audio editing software. That's the most literal interpretation of the term paper cut I think I've ever heard. <laughs> it does seem like that would give you a very physical, like visceral perspective of how the story is coming together, though. That seems like a really great way to just lay everything out, for mm -hmm. lack of a better way of saying that you were actually physically laying everything out. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of it's hard enough if you have 30 pages of transcription to like have if you just do it on your computer to be like scrolling back and forth and trying to connect the dots between them. But as you guys know, it's even harder if it's an audio file and you have to just like scrub back and forth through the audio to try to find clips. So mm -hmm. I felt especially just I mean the podcasts like yours are, you know, they're, they're like pretty lengthy. And in order to be able to like wrestle all of that into, uh, into an, a story, I needed to, I needed to have some way of being able to like, look at all the things I had at one glance and move it around like a puzzle. But how good does it feel when you know that you nailed it? Yeah, I don't, you know, I'm not sure I ever felt totally like I 100% nailed it but it definitely if it, it feels really great when I mean I, I think of it sort of like a math problem yeah like mm -hmm. all of a sudden you're like oh that like that's the that's what the crescendo leads to or like oh that's how these people connect to each other in the story I'm trying to tell I'm kind of curious what it felt like when you were creating this thing because I mean, to put it into context, this was an incredibly contentious election year. You are putting out episodes once a week, which like at the quality of the episodes that you were producing, I imagine probably took, you know, well over 40 hours every time. You're terrified that you might miss a week. 
Um, But at the same time, you're getting this like audience callback and and feedback uh, saying like how much they love everything, you know, how they can't wait to hear the next episode. And I'm sure for every compliment, there was a piece of criticism for like a decision that you had to make about, you know, what to leave in and what to take out. So, I mean, like, how did you deal with that? Like emotionally? Um, I like, I really appreciate that question (laughs) because, uh, I, yeah, I mean, it's really perceptive and thoughtful of you to, to realize it would have been tough. You know, I lucked out in that I feel like the audience was much kinder to me than I anticipated. I thought people were going to tear me to pieces every single episode for, you know, painting a Democrat in this light or a Republican in that light and leaving out this part of someone's legacy or focusing too much on, you know, this horrible part of their past instead of the great policy they did. And there was a little bit of that, but I think, I'm not sure how, but I think somehow in the podcast, just like the earnestness of my effort must have come across because I felt like I got, I got so many more emails like cheering me on than I got response, than I got emails that were nitpicking. Um, Somehow it seemed like people realized that it was a big undertaking and that I wasn't, I mean, I think part of it is I, I tried to never pretend I was an expert. I had experts on and I, I tried to create the platform for expert knowledge, but made very clear up front that I was just approaching this as kind of an average person with average knowledge Mm -hmm. and was just going to like try my best. Um, There was something I think humanizing about that that made people not write the kind of comments to me that you actually see a lot of times on reporter stories. Mm -hmm. I mean, the comment section on print pieces that reporters write can be really, really, really vicious. But I guess maybe there's something about hearing someone's voice in a podcast versus just reading their words on a piece of paper that uh, reminds you like they're a human being just trying to do their best. I was going to say that's an, that's an interesting point that I hadn't considered before. Uh, because you're right. A lot of times, especially writing about political figures, there's vitriol coming from all sides. Um, but I wonder how much you think hearing the personality of the person delivering the message, you know, being able to hear your intonation when you're talking about, the highs and lows of someone's career, how much of an effect do you think that has on the weight of the story that you're telling? As much as I made it my effort to be as objective as possible there, and I don't, I do think I came to it, you know, apolitically, um, definitely just even embedded in story choice is, you know, says something about me <laughs> and, and what I find interesting and what I found profound and meaningful. And one thing I learned about myself in doing the podcast, which hadn't really been clear to me before, is like how much I'm drawn to tragedy. Because I found like 
I mean, it was pretty easy because the presidency, all of these president stories are like riddled with horrific <laughs> tragedy. But, um, but I mean, I found myself wanting to tell those stories and wanting to tell, you know, the part about their childhood when their mother died and the part where their son died in this train accident. And so I guess, you know, another person doing the same podcast might have might have picked entirely different parts to focus on. Um, mm -hmm. So, yeah, I think it, I think it probably the part of who I am as a human probably came across less in any sort of political views than it did in just the parts of people's personalities and um, relationships and childhoods that I found most compelling and interesting. <laughs> so I wanted to get into a little bit of the, the business side of this because, I mean, you were part of the reason that people started focusing on, you know, political podcasts because they realized that they could really harp on news of the day. Uh, since presidential launched a year ago, we've seen, I would, I would say hundreds of shows that focus on politics, but specifically in the last few months, we've seen a lot more that focus on deconstructing the events that are happening today. You know, NHPR's civics 101. Uh, mm -hmm. can he do that? Or the New York times, the daily. Um, yeah. and you know, I definitely feel like you're a little bit responsible for that. Uh, and that's not, you know, a bad thing. I think that's great. But did you know that this was going to be such a hit before you created the show? No, definitely not. Even hearing you say that you think that presidential helps sort of inspire or lay the groundwork for some of those shows that are popular now um, is very flattering. I, I never thought of it that way. But no, I mean, I think... You know, I had like a hope and a hunch that that the same thing that got me sort of curious and excited about it would get other people curious and excited about it. But I definitely had no no sense that it would be as popular as it ended up being. And uh, I think, I mean, I think what that speaks to and what some of these, you know, the popularity of these other shows speak to is that I think people really want more context. I think news is just, you know, flying at us a million miles an hour, but a lot of it is you see just like this one tiny little slice of what's happened and it gets very, I don't know, it gets very isolating and sort of detaching to, to like hear these sound bites or read like an article here and there and not feel like you totally understand where this moment in our country fits into sort of the broader history of who we are and like what of what do we see around us that's progress what do we see around us that's a step backward and in order to understand that you need to like understand where we've been so mm -hmm. um yeah i think I think that the like faster the speed of information and just like the pace of life gets, the more people are going to crave like slowing down for a minute <laughs> and taking a little bit more time to understand something. I also heard a lot from listeners to presidential that, 
it was like a really nice antidote in the election season because we actually in the podcast, you know, we never talked about the candidates on mm. the campaign trail at the time. We didn't talk about what was going on in the presidential debates that week. Um, so I think it was a way for people to feel like they were still involved in, you know, what was important to understand and participate in and know about without actually having with like still getting a break from the actual news. It was a way to feel informed, but not, not have to read like one more piece, uh, on, you know, debates or campaign rallies. You did a really great job of making it bipartisan or nonpartisan. Because, I mean, you're just talking about things that have actually happened. And, you know, this was before the whole fake news fiasco. So uh, that wasn't on people's minds. You know, it was, it was just nice to kind of escape. Which is interesting to look at history as a form of escapism. But what did the numbers on this thing actually look like? Because you had a lot of firepower behind the show. You know, it was being promoted each week by the Washington Post, all over social media. There, It was on several lists of, like, best shows of the year, uh, iTunes New and Noteworthy, and political podcasts. And, and I'm not sure if you can share those numbers, but I'd be really interested to see, you know, kind of what the reach of the show was. Yeah, so, I mean, like, the big figure that I can share and that gives, like, some sense of it, I guess, is... Uh, we passed, we're somewhere between like eight and nine million downloads. Wow. Across the whole show. Yeah. Across the the whole series. Okay. So that, um, that's uh, a pretty good incentive for the Washington Post to, to give you a season two. <laughs> so. Yeah. I think, uh, I think everyone was totally shocked because the Washington Post didn't um, really have any other podcasts at the time that presidential launched. Mm-hmm. So um, it was totally new territory for them, and I think I think that they um, I think the decision to let me do presidential didn't come at all from a sense that they were going to be able to monetize it in some way or like capture that audience to some other end. I think they thought really like, oh, that sounds like sort of a good public service project. And uh, even though we don't really know how this would help us, like, Mm -hmm. yeah, it's just one person's time. And, you know, it seems worthwhile as just an experiment. So I I think everyone was caught off guard. Jeff, tell me a little bit more about CastBox. What is CastBox? So CastBox is an app that you can listen to podcasts on. It's available basically anywhere that you would ever want to listen to a podcast. iOS, Android, desktop. It also works with Google Home and Amazon Alexa. Uh, There are ranked lists and categories that will tell you what's hot right now. Uh, They have a lot of editor's choice suggestions. They have some featured shows. Uh, And one of my favorite features is you can actually do in-app search. Uh, so you can, you know, search a podcast based on words or topics that you like, uh, and the search function will actually pull those out um, from episodes or shows specifically. So, you know, say I want to learn about Bitcoin, it'll tell me all of the different shows out there that are talking about Bitcoin uh, so that I don't get caught in, in a, a maze of my own habits. It sounds useful. Yeah, it, it's pretty great. Download the CastBox app today and try it.
Was there a point where you saw the the sort of thinking in the leadership change when they started to realize what they had on their hands with the podcast? Hmm. I think there were a couple different inflection points. When we hit one million, I think that was that was like a number that made everyone stop <laughs> and uh, and pay a bit more attention for sure. I, th- I guess that was probably the tipping point. Um, that's that seems like about the time that people started saying like, "Wow, that's crazy." <laughs> I mean, did they, because they gave you a lot of resources, like even just with the cover art for the show, you had, you know, a different action figure for every president, um, which, by the way, if you're looking for ways to monetize the show, you should absolutely sell those action figures. Uh, well, it was actually, there's an old toy company that made them, oh. um, and we found them on eBay, and uh, I, a great woman, Amy King, who works in our digital design team, um, was just like, let's buy this set on eBay and we'll take photographs of all of them and use that as the cover art. So it was, a uh, yeah, I, I benefited from like some other cool creative people around the room, uh, being willing to just kind of pitch in and help out on things like making the art for it. Uh, that wasn't part of their jobs. <laughs> well, it was, it was very, very cool to see as a listener. Um, you know, I love the visual elements that come with podcasts because so many people forget about them. Um, but I wanted to to ask you about kind of the elephant in the room. And I know that, you know, you can't really comment on uh, like our current president, uh, you know, that much. But, you know, when you were preparing for the episode uh, for November 9th, uh, you know, I'm I'm just so curious how you decided, you know, like what to prepare, what not to prepare. Um because I, I imagine that election night for you was, you know, just a mad rush to try and get this thing out the door. Yeah, it was. It um, So, I mean, what I did, so for people who didn't listen to the podcast, um, you know, the episodes ticked up from, like, the beginning of January, culminating with, like, the episode the morning after the election which was the final episode of the podcast, which was going to be about the newly elected president. Um, And so everyone listening to the presidential podcast throughout the year sort of knew that's what it was building toward. Um, And, but I was still kind of working on the same timeframe I had for all of them, which is like, I started, you know, at zero on the Monday morning and just had to get up to like a full episode by the time it published. So, uh, I, I basically did parallel interviews about Clinton and Trump the couple days before the election. And so they were the same exact, they were the same guests, a few historians, one of like the kind of premier political journalist at the post. And I did almost like two recording sessions with each person where I'd ask them all the questions as though Hillary Clinton won. And then I asked them all the same questions as though Donald Trump had just won. And I had a folder on my computer that was like Trump interview material and a folder on my computer that said Hillary Clinton interview material. 
And I started then just, um, I started like trying to map out what, you know, the narration and the arc would be given like if it went one way or the other. But because all of the polls and predictions were pointing to Clinton winning, hers was the episode that I started really editing first. Like I started cutting down her interview, the interviews about her first. I started writing out the narration for hers first. Um, and around midnight <laughs> of, the, of the election, uh, it started to really look like Trump was going to win. And at that point, I put all of the Hillary Clinton work aside and um, just started focusing 100% on the Trump episode. I, I have, like, the opening scene of the Trump episode is that... I like walk out of the Washington Post and out on the streets toward the White House. And um, so that was at, I mean, I forget what time, but 2 a.m., 3 a.m., something like that. You know, after he had given his his speech um, accepting accepting the victory, I, uh, I, I walked out with my recorder and... Mm-hmm. Um, captured whatever sounds there were around Washington. There was a bagpiper playing by the White House. And so that's like the opening music for the episode. And uh, I, I pulled the whole thing together by like 6.30 a.m., I guess. Wow. I, I mean, for context. And, con- and for con- just clicked publish. <laughs> For context, I, I mean, I, I think I was just like, you know, hundreds of thousands or many people in the world where I had been listening to your show, you know, somewhat religiously. Like I had my binge period, but when I caught up, it was just kind of, you know, destination listening when the episode would be released. And, you know, I, I was about to, you know, hop on a flight on November 9th to head back to my, my you know, previous life. And I was so looking forward to getting on the plane and hitting play and listening to what you had produced. And you didn't disappoint at all, but it was a surreal experience knowing that, you know, you were experiencing this situation along with us, like not knowing who was going to win and being put in that position where, like, once you found out, it didn't really matter who it was. You still had to get up and do your job before you could go to sleep. So you know, it's not so much a question as a statement. You know, I, I, I've been obsessed with the idea that podcasting is able to, you know, elicit all of these responses that other media isn't really able to. And this is kind of one of those crowning achievements for me because it really just made me stop and think about, like, how we all coexist in the world. So, you know, thank you. Yeah. Was there was there anything different for you uh, in terms of, producing an episode that was very much unlike the other ones in that it was of the moment that we're living in right now. Did that affect how you constructed the narrative arc at all? Yeah, it definitely did. I mean, for most of the, um, for most of the episodes, you know, the story arc was really the life of the president. In almost all cases, I started with telling the story of their childhood and it sort of builds toward how that person ended up being president and then kind of their 
time in office and the legacy they've left. And so it was a very, you know, it was an arc that just follows sort of a human's time on earth. <laughs> for the for the final episode, though, as I got closer to it, uh, I started thinking, you know, regardless of who won, that that probably wasn't going to be the right format, um, in large part because I felt like everyone who was listening to the podcast was also going to have been like saturated over the past year with information about both of these candidates and would know, you know, going into listening to the episode, they would know quite a bit about both of their stories. You know, you end up hearing over the course of the debates and the campaign trail, you know, all about where these people grew up and what the hardest times in their life were and what they've overcome. And so I just felt like that wasn't, those stories weren't going to, that wasn't going to be what people wanted and needed mm. to hear. And, and I was also aware that like, it was going to be the final episode of something that was a pretty like massive endeavor. And, and it felt to me like it was fitting to not totally tie a bow on it, of course, because we sort of end with a big open question of what a next president will usher in. But I did think it it was worth taking time in the episode to go back and reflect on mm -hmm. sort of how we got to where we are. And it was fascinating to go back three months later and listen to that last episode again, uh, which I did just a few hours ago. Oh, really? I yeah. haven't listened to it since I clicked publish. I actually yeah. never listened. I, I listened to it before I clicked publish and I haven't I haven't listened to it again. It's it's kind of uh you know, for everything still holds up. I'll I'll just leave it at that. Um now I have to ask, uh in true millennial bachelorette fashion, uh if you would like to go on a blind <laughs> if you could go on a blind date with any president, which would you pick? So I think my answer, I, I go back and forth a little bit because obviously I've given it a lot of thought. But um, <laughs> I mean, I, I think most most days I, I go with Theodore Roosevelt. Um, Walk tall and carry a big stick. Yeah, he just like, most of the presidents, I felt like, you know, once you sort of, lived in their stories for a while they they became very human um and not just kind of like these figures and portraits who occupied the white house but teddy roosevelt like even after i finished his episode i was just like i don't get how this person actually existed as a real person in the world <laughs> like he was so much larger than life and i just think yeah, I don't know that I could be married to him or <laughs> date him for any prolonged period of time. But I think like for a single blind date, I would just love the experience of being in a room with someone with like that much energy and vitality. And it's just, I don't think that's anything I've ever, I don't think I've ever come across someone in my life who's described the way that Theodore Roosevelt has been. 
I would love to meet anyone who's met someone like that and then subsequently meet that person. Yeah. I don't know if, do, do they still exist today? I feel like we know too much about how people really operate. Well, the funny thing is that a bunch of the Roosevelts do still exist. And I, I don't, I'm going to butcher all of this, but one of them is like the head of like the fishing games society or something. One of them is like the, one of the large, country's largest philanthropists. And, uh, and one of them was a client of, of my old companies uh, a while ago. And, and he's still like the larger than life whiskey toting gentleman. Um, the really? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> And it's That's so great. It, it, yeah, it really like makes me smile. Well, anyway, on this show, Lillian, we bring on a guest to discuss a story that they've always struggled to tell. Uh, and sometimes those stories get told and sometimes they don't. And I know that you've prepared one for us. So this is as good a time as any for us to get to that. Sure. So, yeah, I mean, it keeps with the presidential podcast since that's the thing that's sort of still in my head and my heart these days. But the least known president, it turns out, from, you know, there are people who've done a bunch of studies asking, um, like, asking Americans to recognize presidents' names. And the least remembered and recognized president is Chester Arthur. It's something like 9% of people who identify him as a president. (laughs) So, which is horrible, wow. but um, so so for his episode, uh, you know, there there were sort of twin challenges. One was the fact that this is obviously someone people have shown like no interest in learning about. There's there's kind of nothing sexy and intriguing and compelling that will draw people into this story. It seemed. And then, and then there was also the challenge, it turned out, of the fact that he burned basically all of his papers before he died, <laughs> which, I mean, you know, for, for most of presidential history, the good, the better part of, you know, early presidential history for sure, like, this is the only way that we have any records of these presidents, really, because, you know, we don't have videos of them. We don't have radio recordings. And so their letters um, and diaries, like these are sort of the ways that we come to know who these people are. And, you know, it's why, it's why certain presidents have lots of biographies written about them. It turns out, you know, it's not, biographies are written of people, not just who did meaningful, important world-changing things. They're also just written about people who there's a lot of information out there to write about and who there are, you know, interesting details you can dig up in their diaries. So um, so for all these reasons, it was like, I came up to the Chester Arthur episode and felt like I know nothing about him. No one else knows anything about him. And there's like barely a document out there to find or a book out there to read about him to learn more. Uh, but it turned out he actually had what I found to be like possibly like the story that stuck with me most from the presidential podcast or certainly one of the top ones, which is that there were a couple things he didn't burn before he died. Just 
a series of letters that this woman sent him who he didn't know. Um, she was a young woman who was sort of crippled and invalid and lived in New York. And, well, I guess I should tell a little bit of the story of Chester Arthur, which is that he was kind of this two-bit politician in New York who worked his way up the ranks, um, totally taking kickbacks. And he, he was like the epitome of the political patronage system at the time. Um, and in no way did anyone consider him sort of a bright, great, shining politician. But um, because of all this sort of cronyism, he, he ended up being on the vice presidential, he ended up being vice president to James Garfield. Um, James Garfield was like a rock star, a rising star, held all this promise. Um, everyone thought like, eh, it doesn't matter that Chester's Arthur, Chester Arthur is vice president. Cause like, what does a vice president do? Except that he becomes president when a president dies, which is what happened to James Garfield. And so suddenly the country is confronted with the fact that like, this president that they'd all been really excited about and who held so much promise um, was assassinated. And not only are they dealing with the emotions of a presidential assassination, but the person who's stepping into the role was just the horror of the political world. Anyways, this woman, Julia Sand, starts writing to Chester Arthur as he's about to step into the role as president. And she says, basically... Everyone thinks you're horrible. Nothing you've done in your life so far shows that you could be any better than that. But for some reason, I believe in you. And I believe that you can use this opportunity to like not let power further corrupt you. Let power sort of set free the, to quote Lincoln, like the better angels of your nature. Like this is your chance to prove everyone wrong about like who you are deep down and what you're capable of. These are the only things that he saved were these letters. The only things he didn't burn of all his documents were these letters that this stranger sent him calling on his better self. And it turned out like that, that, that actually was his story that when he became president, he was the president who instituted civil service reform, which got rid of all of these you know, being able to pay for political positions. And I mean, he really cleaned up government service and turned it into a civil service um, rather than a, a patronage outpost. And um, so he, it turned out he had this absolutely beautiful story, but it kind of took like, it took being able to <laughs> sort of get past the fact that everything, like the whole narrative we kind of have around him is as this bland, boring president stuck in the middle of the, the middle of a stretch of other boring presidents. And, um, it, it ended up, ended up working its way into my very final episode. And it was this story that has just really stuck with me and that I found really beautiful and sort of mysterious. That was long. <laughs> Sorry for how long that was. 
Well, it's also captivating. It's such a good story that I never knew existed until I listened to that episode. Like these these letters that come from just a, a almost anonymous person. Do we know? Did you learn in your research for this episode more about? Um, is it Julia Sand? Yeah, Julia Sand. I mean, I I discovered you know sort of the basics of her life. There aren't. I mean, she wasn't a notable figure, so there there isn't anything anyone else has written about her. But you know, it showed that she was she was in her thirties. She lived in New York City and and was basically bedridden um, because of some of a couple of various illnesses and read the newspapers religiously and um, followed politics. And, you know, Chester Arthur was a New York politician. And so he was kind of her local politician. She followed the news of, and she had sort of watched him climb up in these various roles. But but we don't really know much more than that about her. Is her, I don't think anyone, no one thought to, uh, to like record her story. No one, it doesn't seem that anyone but Chester Arthur even really knew that she had had this impression on the president. Do all of your friends want you to come to trivia now? <laughs> you know, actually, not a single one has asked me, which is crazy because <laughs> Washington, D.C. is full of trivia nights. It's like a really popular activity here. Uh, I don't know why no one has asked me. <laughs> well, just send them this send them Maybe this now episode. they will. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Where where can our listeners find you? Um, so you can either just go to iTunes or Stitcher and search for Presidential by the Washington Post. Um, or you can also find all the episodes just for free to listen to in whatever order you want on the Washington Post site. It's just WashingtonPost.com slash presidential. And then you can find me on Twitter at Lily underscore Cunningham. And uh, I guess I guess that those are all the places. And there's Instagram, uh, have a presidential Instagram account. Presidential which is, which is really fun. WP. To, really fun to look at. And you have uh, a newsletter for season two, right? Uh, we do. So we um, don't, we haven't 100% nailed down uh, the launch date. And the specific topic yet, we have um, a couple <laughs> great, we, we got so many great ideas um, and suggestions from listeners. So, uh, you know, we're, we're still trying to like just 100% nail down which, which way to go with it. But we will definitely have a season two. And um, if people want to, if you want to find out what it is like before anyone else, if you really care that much, um, which would be awesome. Then, uh, actually, if you go to the same place, washingtonpost.com slash presidential, there's, there's like an email field where you can just put in your email address and we won't spam you or anything. We'll just send you a single email when, uh, we're ready to tell our most avid listeners what the topic will be and when the first episode will launch.
All right. Thanks everyone for listening. Uh, we don't want to keep you too long because you should be doing holiday stuff. And if you're listening, go wrap your presents and then unwrap them and then uh, experience the joy all over again. It is so joyful. It is so, so joyful. But if you are listening to this way in the future and have no idea what we're talking about, I'm sorry. That was Lillian Cunningham. Thank you so much for joining us. The music that you heard at the top and the bottom of the hour is from Ryan Dan of Holland Patton Public Library. Uh, the first time that this episode aired back in March, we teased a new CD that he had coming out. He's still working on it, but subscribe to his newsletter at hollandpattonpubliclibrary.com. And thank you also to Ben Sound, who did the music in the middle of the show. Bensound.com, everybody. Uh, you can find us online at thepodglomerate.com slash writers who don't write. And thank you so much for listening. Happy holidays. Have an even happier new year. And thank God we're out of 2017. Pod Glomer, a sonic universe.